This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by GE Additive. Additive manufacturing, also known as 3D printing, is a transformative approach to industrial metal production that could help address material shortages due to diminishing manufacturing supply. GE Additive provides machines, metal powders, engineering, and print services that can support the Navy with spare part printing capability and a more flexible spare parts supply base. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, Proceedings Magazine Editor-in-Chief, Bill Hamlet. Hello, Bill. Hello, Ward. So you have a new piece of gear on your head. You have a headset. The audience, our regular listeners, uh, have probably noticed that we've been, what we call in the business, iterating uh, in our new construct, trying to find the best possible sound quality and... uh, uh, with us not being co-located in Beach Hall. So we believe we've ramped it up well with your uh, your headset. Yeah, my voice still does not sound like James Earl Jones, much to my chagrin. <laughs> but uh, I do have a headset. I feel like I'm an air, air traffic controller. And, and yeah, sitting in my living room in uh, Northern Virginia, I think this is better sound quality. We hope it's uh, better sound quality. We've been experimenting and the podcast, uh, when we can have a guest in the studio, and you and I are both together in Beach Hall with the Gucci mics that we have that you have now in your house, uh, the sound quality can be much better than uh, when we're all remote. But yeah, you know, we're making it work, right? This is uh, we're not we're open for business. It's not business as usual, as we keep saying. And uh, one thing that certainly illustrates that point is the uh, the insanity. Uh, I don't know if, of a better word to use, but uh, the insanity of What's been happening in the U.S. Navy in the past week or so certainly has been a very rapidly executed news cycle. And and Sam Legrone and company from USNI News have been keeping on top of what's happening with COVID-19 and the hospital ships and the USS Theodore Roosevelt pulling into Guam and Captain Crozier and his relief. And then uh, culminating yesterday with the the resignation of the acting secretary of the Navy, uh, Modley. So it's been it's been a, a very busy time. A lot of commentary on our site. A lot of uh, news on the USNI news site. So certainly certainly a lot going on, despite the fact that we are operating remotely. Yeah, and as we've been saying, we recommend folks stay tuned to USNI news. Um, starting with subscribe to the newsletter each morning, but then check it out during the day. Follow them on Twitter. Uh, like them on Facebook. Uh, you know, it's been dizzying. This week alone, uh, from Monday till now, has been, as you've described, crazy. Um, we're, as we've said before, we're going to stay out of the current events business, um, just because by the time we post-produce the show and make it live, it's completely overcome by events. Um, but uh, the facts do remain that the acting sec nav uh, resigned day before yesterday in the afternoon. How that affects us is our annual meeting, which is taken a virtual form. Uh, in fact, if you go up the usnight.org site, go up our events tab, uh, you can find out uh, more about that meeting. It's on April 30th. Uh, virtually register as you normally would and get all the gouge on, on how you attend the annual meeting. But Acting Secretary uh, Modley was going to be the 
keynote, and now it's going to be the CNO. So obviously, um, that's a change of, of, of some measure, but the CNO uh, is, is you know, actually uh, probably the right guy uh, for a Q&A about now, and we're very happy that he has uh, accepted uh, the opportunity to address uh, our members at our virtual annual meeting. So, as I said, register as soon as you can. All right, so today we have Andrew Roberts joining us from the UK. He's in London. He is, he's done the foreword for the most recent release from our graphic novel imprint, Dead Reckoning, a book called Churchill, a graphic biography. Hello, Andrew. Hello. Hi, good to speak to you. Um, so just tell the folks a little bit about you. You're a British historian and journalist. Your modern works have focused on World War II primarily, and uh, your work was the basis for the BBC series Hitler and Churchill, which was uh, aired in 2013. You won the 2010 British Army Military Book of the Year for Storm of War, A New History of the Second World War. And, and I'm going to do some French here, so hold on. You won the Prix du Jury de Grand Prix de la Fondation Napoleon in 2014 for Standpoint. In Pop Americana, folks may believe because of the series The Crown, which was on Netflix, and um, The King's, what's that, what was that movie with, uh, what's his name? The King's Speech, right? People may believe, oh, and also uh, The Finest Hour. Because of all of those things, people may believe, um, your average American may believe they know a thing or two about Churchill. Well, I wonder if I could just um, butt in there and say that if they believe anything that they see in the crown, um, then they've got it wrong and that they don't know anything about um, the truth. Owing to the fact that the crown is a completely uh, and utterly entertainment show and has no bearing on historical truth whatsoever. Okay. That's that's a good uh, caveat for sure. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the, the show that you refer to, I think, the Darkest Hour, um, right? The Darkest Hour, Gary Oldman's movie, is an awful lot more accurate. That actually had some some good historical consultancy done for it, and uh, and it made an awful lot more sense. And if Americans take uh, what they know about Churchill from the Darkest Hour, that would be an awful lot better than The Crown, certainly. Except I heard he did not do that thing where he rode on the tube. That didn't really happen. <laughs> no, no, he never. He never went on the subway after 1926. He certainly didn't. Um, also, when he went down on the subway in the movie uh, and asked the people whether or not they wanted to carry on fighting against Hitler, and then came back and said that he was going to fight against Hitler, that gets it completely the wrong way round. In fact, Winston Churchill gave the British people the leadership. Um, and always wanted to continue fighting against uh, Hitler and persuaded them to do it. So, they, so that scene, that particular scene on the subway, is completely ludicrous. Um, however, the rest of the movie is, is pretty high quality, I have to say. So, Andrew, uh, you're, you wrote the foreword in this graphic novel, and, and for our listeners, some of whom are uh, dedicated to the graphic novels that, that the Naval Institute has been putting out through the uh, Dead Reckoning imprint, uh, some people have asked us, well, why would the Naval Institute do uh, graphic novels? And uh, to that, we always answer, well, one, they're very popular today with young readers and, and with some old readers. Um, but two, it's a way to introduce 
historical subjects, uh, naval topics, uh, to readers who perhaps would not have found them uh, through the more, uh, I guess, uh, direct method to, to, to history, to history documents. And uh, you're the author of a Churchill biography called Churchill Walking the Destiny, Walking with Destiny. And in your foreword to this graphic novel, uh, you, you say, having just myself written the 1010th biography of Churchill, there's not a word I would have changed in the text of this F excellent graphical no account. Uh, so I'm just curious, I mean, uh, reading through this graphic novel, the, the, the uh, artwork is absolutely beautiful. It moves incredibly quickly through a man who led a long and rich and event-filled life. Um, tell us a little bit about your, your thinking on how that how fast the pacing is of the graphic graphic novel. And also, you say you wouldn't have changed a word of the text. Um, how, how does a, a successful graphic novel, a successful historic account in graphic novel form, how does it capture the essence of a man like Churchill in so few words and in so such rich artwork? Well, as you say, it, uh, it somehow manages to cover this extraordinary career um, between his birth in 1874 and it ends 112 pages later with the victory at the end of the Second World War in May 1945. Um, these action-packed uh, years for Winston Churchill in which he fought on four continents in five campaigns and was... Uh, held almost all of the great offices of state in the uh, in the British days, and of course served as important in the First World War um, as well. And uh, and yet he manages to, the the author manages to fit it into um, 112 pages. It really is a a masterpiece of compression. What it doesn't do, um, which sometimes um, the graphic novels can, is to just skimp over the um, the serious bits, as it were. It's not just one um, action scene after another, although Winston Churchill's life might seem like that occasionally. It does actually go into some of the more interesting and uh, even obscure parts of Churchill's life. Um, and that's because it was originally written as a history, a proper history book, and then they attached on these, uh, as you say, these very fine artworks rather than doing it the other way round. And I think uh, it's much the better for that. So the book opens at uh, Blenheim Palace, which we discover, because young Winston says, looking at a painting on the wall, hey, Nanny, who's that? And she says, he's your ancestor, Winston, John Churchill, first Duke of Marlborough, who defeated Louis XIV's troops at Blenheim, and everywhere else he fought them. So he's born into gentry, and right away, we get a really interesting, intimate view of how kind of by modern standards, let me just use the word weird, um, his young life was. That's right. Well, more than, more than gentry, really, the very top of the aristocracy. His grandfather was the Duke of Marlborough, um, descended directly, of course, from the great soldier, the first Duke. And, uh, and he was born in, in Blenheim Palace itself, um, which is uh, a palace that even the royal family are uh, envious of. When King George III went to visit um, uh, Blenheim, he said, we have nothing like this. And, um, and so, yes, he was born at the very apex of Victorian society at a time, of course, when 
the British Empire was the largest that the world had ever seen. So late 1800s, his dad is in the House of Commons, uh, comes off as uh, kind of a cold man, to put it mildly. Talk to us about his relationship with his son, Winston. Lord Randolph Churchill was a brilliant politician in many ways. He was Chancellor of the Exchequer, um, a conservative politician and a very um, effective one. But he just simply never spotted anything um, remarkable at all in his son, Winston, and uh, despised him, frankly. And he wrote letters to him that no father should ever write to any son, um, full of contempt. And, uh, and so... His father, he, he worshipped his father and wanted always to try to impress his father, but found it impossible to do. And uh, it's one of the great sadnesses of his life that his father died at the age of 45. Um, I, by the way, when you mentioned earlier that I wouldn't change a word, um, I now wish I hadn't said that, owing to the fact that there is one word in this whole book um, which refers to the death of Lord Randolph Churchill from syphilis, which modern doctors are now drawing a question mark over. Many of them say that actually it wasn't syphilis that killed Lord Randolph, but a rare, rare um, brain disease. But nonetheless, um, however he died, uh, Winston was 20 years old at the time of his death and was um, profoundly affected by it, as you'd imagine, and really spent the whole of the rest of his life attempting to impress the shade of his long-dead father. One of the things that, that comes out very strongly in this book is the the um, fascination that young Winston has for military subjects. And there's a scene in, in the book where Winston has in his, he's probably, I'm, I'm guessing 10 maybe, and he's got Empire, his great battles set up in uh, toy soldiers in his room. And his father comes in to, uh, to talk to him about that. Uh, and and that that's sort of an inspiration for where Winston goes in his early career, ends up at Harrow, and then on to uh, to Sandhurst. What was his father? Did his father serve in the British military? His father became a, an MP when he was only 21 years old for a what we call a pocket borough, um, the local seat uh, from Blenheim Palace, Woodstock. So he went straight into politics. Um, and frankly, one of the reasons that they put Winston into the army rather than going into politics or actually going into Oxford or Cambridge, which would have been the normal thing to have happened, was um, because they didn't think he'd be very clever. And uh, and he was, they got him a place in the cavalry, uh, which at that stage was uh, considered to be the upper class, um, but not the intellectual side of the army, which was the infantry. And, uh, and so it was very much something that was impossible Lord Randolph, two hundred pounds a year extra to put him in the cavalry, and because they thought that he wasn't very bright, this is absurd and ridiculous. Because as we know, in fact, this is a man who wrote thirty-seven books. He was a highly intelligent person, um, but it didn't come out uh, early enough uh, for him to um, to go to Oxford or, or Cambridge. So his first taste of of war comes in uh, India's northwest frontier, but he's not there as a as a warfighter, necessarily, he's a correspondent. Yes, interestingly, actually, uh, this is one thing that is elided in the in the book. In fact, his first taste of war was to go to Cuba during the Cuban uprising against the Spanish Empire, uh, and he was he was uh, attached to as a, as a correspondent um, the uh, the Spanish forces there. So he was, on his twenty first birthday, he uh, first heard. Third, 
died in anger. Um, he later wrote that there's nothing more exhilarating than to be shot at without result. But as you say, not um, a, uh, a commissioned officer all the way through. He, he was also writing a um, uh, writing for the newspapers, and he became, in fact, by the time he had uh, he had fought in his third war, he became the best paid uh, war correspondent in the world at the time. So he's actually in the army, but working as a correspondent. So is that what we'd call a public affairs officer in modern times? No, no, no. He's, he's absolutely writing just for newspapers, not indeed uh, at all for the, uh, for the armed forces. He has, in fact, I got that wrong slightly earlier, he, he did, in fact, have a, a commission in the British Army, and they just allowed him to, um, to write articles as well. And, of course, he was therefore paid by the newspaper rather than by the, uh, by the army. In today's military, that would be considered a, a real conflict of interest, right? You couldn't possibly do that. No, exactly. Whereas, the, whereas in the uh, British Army in those days, um, they were much more relaxed uh, about that kind of thing, especially, of course, if it was being done by an aristocrat. It's interesting here uh, in the scenes in the Northwest Frontier, uh, as a young army officer, he's also talking about and, and uh, doing some writing, as you point out, for newspapers back home, and uh, and his political ambitions come out. Now, that's something that I think a lot of uh, young junior officers, at least in the U.S. military, if they admitted to their shipmates or their, their company mates that they had career aspirations to serve in Congress, they would be ridiculed for that. It would be something that you wouldn't, uh, you know, come right out and, and say as a, as maybe a... A lieutenant in the U.S. Navy, I think, but he comes out and says it, and that's that's a big part well, of the. That, actually, uh, that's much more to do with Churchill than it is to do with the mores of the day. Actually, okay, he would have been he would have been ridiculed as well by his brother officers in the in the officers' mess of his uh, of his regiment for wanting to go into politics. But nonetheless, he was somebody for whom criticism and ridicule and and attack just where just just. It's like water off a duck's back, as far as Churchill was concerned, which was very lucky, because he was, of course, going to become tremendously unpopular later on in his life. And during his overseas exploits, his combat exploits, he's constantly writing letters home to Mama, dearest Mama. Uh, talk about his relationship with his mother and, and uh, the role that she played in his life as he, uh, you know, sort of grew up and became experienced both in the military and, and in Parliament. Lady Randolph Churchill, Jenny Jerome, was... Uh, born in Brooklyn, she was fully American. Uh, she was a great beauty, great society beauty, but she never really had very much time for uh, Churchill. Actual proper time, he, he, she hardly saw anything of him. Um, at the age of nine, for example, she only saw him for six hours and six months. She was a great, as I say, a great society beauty, um, and uh, and just never never found any time for Winston and. He writes something in his autobiography in 1930, which is tremendously moving, I think, where he said that she shone for me like the evening star, brilliant, but at a distance, which is obviously not something that anyone wants to um, wants to, uh, have to feel about their mothers. And um, so what, by the age of 25 or so, he was um, thinking was that it was time really for her to help him. And uh, her husband, or Randolph, had died by then, and uh, she did. She was um, she was assiduous in um, making sure that all of her social contacts were 
every every string was pulled to make sure that Sir Churchill could get on the various expeditions that he wanted to, including, of course, the uh, Sudanese ex- expedition in um, in 1898 and the Boer War in 1899. Let's let's fast forward to 1911 because um, that starts to be consequential in, in the formulation of Churchill uh, in ultimately in his finest hour in World War II. But as the drums of war, and again, your average American thinks of World War I as 1917, 1918, right? Um, and uh, what we see here is some of the treaties and the other, other things, the other tensions that are happening across Europe are, are starting to affect not just British foreign policy, but there is some there are some skirmishes and other military decisions being made. So Churchill gets the nod to be first Lord of the Admiralty, and he makes a decision that winds up pretty much haunting him for the duration of his, uh, of his life, really. Yes, he becomes um, first Lord of the Admiralty in charge of the British Navy, as you say, in 1911. He does some extremely important and useful and good things in the Admiralty. Uh, he really overhauls the Admiralty. He gets the Royal Navy ready for the First World War. He turns the entire Navy over from coal-powered to oil-powered um, ships, which uh, meant that they could move faster, of course, although it did mean that we therefore also had strategic obligations in the Middle East, which uh, um, were to come back to haunt us. Um, over the years, but nonetheless, it was a uh, it was an extremely important decision to have made. He sacked a lot of admirals, appointed lots of um, what he thought were uh, younger and more aggressive admirals. He was a um, a real sort of uh, major force for change in the navy. Uh, but in nineteen, and uh, you're quite right about the um, outbreak of the First World War, which of course in fact was in August nineteen fourteen. And um, and by the time the the war started, the uh, uh, the Royal Navy was ready for it. And um, in 1915, however, he was the primary supporter, not the only supporter, but the primary supporter of a visionary scheme to try to get the Royal Navy from the Eastern Mediterranean through the Straits of the Dardanelles and anchor it off. Um, Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, and through the threat of shelling, take the Ottoman Empire out of the Great War, which, if it had come off, would have been one of the great strategic coups in the history of warfare. But as it was, um, the Allies uh, lost six ships on the um, on the 18th of March 1915, trying to get through the Straits of the Dardanelles. It was a uh, disaster, and Churchill then doubled down on the defeat, and uh, landed a huge force on the uh, western side of the Straits, on the Gallipoli Peninsula. And over the next eight months, uh, we, the Allies, lost no fewer than 147,000 killed and wounded. And this, of course, was disastrous for his career. He was forced to resign from the uh, Admiralty and, and go and fight in the trenches on the Western Front. So that's a little uh, sort of pause from his aspirations, uh, as you say. How does he sort of rehabilitate himself? He rehabilitated himself really by um, showing, showing bravery, of course. He was 40 years old. He wasn't being called up. He was married. There was no real need for him to go to the Western 
front. But in a redemptive sense, he of course needed to um, to prove his uh, his um, uh, courage, and he went off, commanded a battalion on the Western Front, and um, and was uh, extremely good at it. So he came back as a uh, as a lieutenant colonel and was appointed to be Minister of Munitions and was a great success as Minister of Munitions and wound up at the end of the war as, uh, as Secretary for uh, War and um, and Air. So he was in charge of both the Army and the uh, fledgling Air Force, which he was um, instrumental in setting up. Uh, Winston Churchill was the father, really, he's the godfather of the RAF. So you have this um, this extraordinary First World War, starting off in a senior position, forced to resign in uh, in a humiliating um, disaster, which was largely his fault. Uh, then going off and, and hearing more um, snipers' bullets uh, being fired at him without result, and uh, finally creating the big guns and the ammunition necessary to, um, to help win the war in the end. So it was a, uh, a very active so Americans often criticize their politicians for not having more experience. That wasn't something that Churchill suffered from by the time he was done with World War One. So now we have the period between the wars, and he has, let's just say, time to focus on his political aspirations. What what are the moves he makes there? Well, he uh, is, of course, as I mentioned, Secretary for War and Air, which is an important position. Um, he continues on um, doing that until 1922. And then he changes his political party. He'd already started as conservative like his father, but in 1904 he had, uh, he had uh, crossed the floor of the House of Commons and become a liberal um, because the conservatives had given up on free trade and he was always a free trader. And then he uh, went back, when the conservatives went back to free trade in 1924, he uh, returned to the Conservatives and became Chancellor of the Exchequer. He was Chancellor of the Exchequer for five years, from 1924 onwards, and um, at which time he saw the general strike of 1926, and of course the beginnings of the um, of the uh, collapse in uh, in the whole of the Western system, economic system that started with the Wall Street uh, crash of October 1929. Um, that really took him through uh, through to the 1930s. So, Chancellor of the Exchequer in Great Britain is equivalent to Secretary of the Treasury in the United States. Um, a little bit more powerful than that, even. Uh, in fact, he's, it, it's the job that people have prior to becoming Prime Minister. It's considered to be the Prime Minister in waiting, as well as just being as, as well as being the person in control of the economy. Wow. So. As we were talking about, the uh, the pacing of the graphic novel is very different than that of a book or a movie even. And um, if you're not familiar with this format, it, it might take some getting used to. And But once you're into it, it makes perfect sense. And it's really sort of an engaging, you know, I, I read this book a number of times. And, uh, you know, they have panels that are just an expression of somebody. And then there's some action and then there is some detail. And it's, it's, it's just amazing. So... Just like we were talking about, Americans generally don't think of World War One, except 1917-1918. Similarly, because we're Americans and we're myopic, <laughs> um, we uh, we don't think of World War Two, 
you know, starting until 1941, or maybe uh, the Blitzkrieg in 39, right? So, but here you, there's a, a, a cool scene of Churchill reading the paper in 1933, musing to his wife about the threat of Hitler. So he saw it coming, and I don't know if he's a lone ranger in this regard, but he saw it coming from a pretty long way off. He certainly was the main ranger. In fact, there was no other major British political figure who warned against Hitler as early as Churchill did and as effectively and as, um, uh, as sort of solidly. He was uh, uh, well, he was in the wilderness at that stage, as he put it, and the fact that he resigned from the Conservative uh, shadow cabinet in January 1930. And he wasn't appointed, first of all, the Admiralty again, uh, until September 1939, when the first, when the Second World War broke out, so he actually spent the entire 1930s, all but a couple of months of them, um, in the uh, on the back benches and the Conservative uh, Party, not in any kind of ministerial position, even though the Conservatives were in office pretty much the whole of that decade. And he spent that time warning the uh, British people and the world about the true nature of Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. But um, frankly, nobody was in much of a mood to listen. They'd gone through the horrors of the First World War. They definitely didn't want uh, to have to fight another. They thought of Churchill as a warmonger uh, who was only using his anti-German stance to try to get back into power. And um, and so he was he was shouted down and and ridiculed and uh, and treated um, as a uh, as a fraud and a warmonger in those. Uh, in those years which we could have spent instead arming and getting ready for the Nazi onslaught. Well, it's funny how that cynicism of viewing him as a warmonger is sort of timeless, right? We have the same thing now. You know, it's well documented with uh, Neville Chamberlain's role in, in giving um, Hitler the Sudetenland and coming back and saying, okay, we're, we're done. And even at that time, as documented in, in you know, the darkest hour and other other places recently, people were thinking that Churchill was was uh, petitioning for war at a time when it wasn't necessary. So, what's the what's the true story there with respect to how he came into uh, be the prime minister? Well, um, of course, having spent the 1930s warning about Hitler um, and uh, and begging the British people to rearm. Um, and being ignored for a whole decade. Actually, when uh, it turned out that Hitler was just as bad as everybody thought and that the Sudetenland was not going to be the end of his um, territorial ambitions in, in Europe, and especially after the 15th of March 1939 when Hitler invaded the rump of Czechoslovakia, the rest of Czechoslovakia, um, and started to threaten Poland, everybody realized that Churchill had been right all this time, um, and that we needed to rearm as quickly as, uh, as possible. And uh, so when the war broke out, when Hitler did invade Poland in September 1939, he was made First Lord of the Admiralty again. He got his old job back from the First World War. And this time he didn't make uh, any uh, disasters along the lines of the Dardanelles, the Gallipoli campaign, um, although there was a defeat in Norway. And that uh, defeat, created a, um, a debate, uh, forced a debate in the House of Commons in uh, May 1940 that brought down Neville Chamberlain as 
prime minister, and um, and there was a power vacuum, and uh, Churchill stepped into it and insisted on becoming prime minister, and um, it happened actually the day he became prime minister, the 10th of May, um, 1940, precisely the same day that Adolf Hitler then invaded um, the West, attacking Belgium and Holland and Luxembourg, and shortly afterwards, of course, also to uh, invade France. There's this page in the graphic novel that is just, uh, it's intense in several ways. At, at the top of the page, there's the scene of, of uh, Hitler addressing, uh, in Germany, giving one of his angry speeches, and uh, and then it, cut, it sort of fades into Churchill smoking a cigar in his study at, at home, and his wife comes in and says, if I didn't know you better, I'd say you were almost serene. And the, the uh, dialogue in the graphic novel is uh, Churchill saying, as far back as I can remember, I always knew that one day the British Empire would be in great danger and that I would be the only bulwark against this terrible threat. That's a very powerful statement to think that, um, you know, that, that he felt in his heart that he was the bulwark against, that, uh, against Hitler and against uh, Nazi Germany. And that is directly accurate. Uh, again, yeah, again and again, you see this in this in this uh, graphic novel. Um, that it it almost could be a, a sort of cartoon version of my biography, Churchill Walking the Destiny. And the reason that I called my book, subtitled my book, that was because of exactly this moment on the tenth of May, nineteen forty, where he writes later in his um, in his war memoirs, "I felt as if I were walking the destiny." and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. And when he was a 15-year-old, sorry, a 16-year-old schoolboy at Harrow, he had said to his best friend um, that there should be great wars and terrible struggles and upheavals in our lives, and I should be called upon to save London, save England, and save the Empire. And half, half a century later, exactly half a century later, precisely that happened. Churchill's a quote machine. Uh, he always had been. How he described the Battle of Britain is never in the course of human history have so many owed so much to so few, talking about the RAF. So he, he weathers Dunkirk, um, the Battle of Britain, and, and then the Americans are, are, let's just say, forced into the war when they were sort of reluctant um, and, and as captured in the darkest hour. FDR um, arguably wasn't there when the British needed them earlier. Um, but here they come. It's true that, of course, the United States didn't declare war on um, on Hitler. But the Roosevelt administration was extremely helpful to the British um, before that. We got a quarter of a million rifles and all the ammunition from you in May 1940, when the Germans were expected to invade any minute. Uh, you were tremendously helpful when it came to the Lend-Lease of uh, March 1941, which allowed us to buy uh, munitions from you without having to pay you. Uh, we didn't actually give you the final payment until the year 2016 for lend lease uh, material. And, um, and in many other ways, you gave us 40, sorry, 50 destroyers in September 1940. So it's not true that the Roosevelt administration did nothing. They, they did a good deal short of war. Well, that, that's, that's good to know as a Yank. It's just, in that movie, The Darkest Hour, Roosevelt is painted as kind of a heartbreaker in terms of when, when he wanted the <laughs> ships, right? So what was their relationship? And then I want to ask you about de Gaulle. But let's start with Churchill and Roosevelt. 
Um, yes, it was a very fine, very good relationship. Um, they liked one another personally. They came from much the same kind of aristocratic backgrounds in their own um, countries. They had much the same attitude towards politics. Uh, Churchill was a Tory Democrat, um, which overlapped a lot with the kind of New Deal um, uh, Democrat of, um, of Franklin Roosevelt's political persuasion. Um, they, he didn't much, Churchill didn't much like the cocktails that, uh, that Franklin Roosevelt mixed for him at Hyde Park in his, in his house in upstate New York. But other than that, um, they got on like a house on fire and, uh, and it was a personal friendship therefore as well as the, uh, political connection, which of course they also had to have for the good of both of their countries. There's a funny scene where Churchill's taking a bath and, uh, Churchill opens his open kimono, as it were, uh, and says, Britain has nothing to hide, <laughs> which gives FDR a nice the, laugh. The, the Prime Minister of Great Britain has nothing to hide from the President of the United States. It, it was actually as he was getting out of the bar in, uh, in the White House when he went to stay for uh, four weeks in the, uh, in the White House in, in 1941. Yeah, and there's a nice panel of FDR laughing. So in the end, he's sort of fretting about the, the emerging red threat, Soviet threat, and uh, a military figure, it, uh, it's not clear who that guy is, kind of says, hey, the nation's waiting for you to celebrate the end of World War II. Kind of like, let's just live in the moment here and, and celebrate that. And, and then the final panels are, are, are him basically giving a high five to the, the throng who are below the balcony of, uh, where is he there? Is that, is that Buckingham Palace? He's in Whitehall. Yeah, he's in the Ministry of Health building on on Whitehall, waving to the crowds of hundreds of thousands of people who've come to uh, who come to cheer uh, him. So he gets to live in the moment. There, it's a fantastic way to uh, to end uh, the the book. So, Andrew, anything we're leaving out here, or we're running out of time? Is there anything else that the, the listeners should? I have to say, I have to say, how comprehensive this interview's been. It's been. Uh, pretty extraordinary. It's not uh, often I get uh, I get put through my paces about every single um, aspect of, uh, of, of Churchill's uh, life and career. I'm very impressed, I have to say. Well, that's amazing because we're both historical morons. <laughs> we're just two retired Navy guys. <laughs> not, that, not that I'd notice. <laughs> so, Andrew Roberts, British historian and the guy who did the Ford in the most recent graphic novel from Dead Reckoning, Churchill a graphic biography calling us from from London. Andrew, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Will. And for our listeners, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll catch you next week. This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by GE Additive. Additive manufacturing, also known as 3D printing, is a transformative approach to industrial metal production that could help address material shortages due to diminishing manufacturing supply. GE Additive provides machines, metal powders, engineering, and print services that can support the Navy with spare part printing capability and a more flexible spare parts supply base.